This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. I'm part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm talking to you from Vox Media headquarters in New York City. In a minute, we're going to go back in time to California, where Amanda Clute, who's the editor-in-chief of Eater, and I talked to David Chang, who runs the Momofuku Empire, and I have a giant, giant man crush on him. Um, it's a very cool conversation. We talked about how David Chang built a restaurant empire, how he's creating a media empire, Really long and, and really frank and candid conversation about Me Too and and where someone like David Chang fits into that, where he's failed, where he's trying to succeed. Um, it's a very cool, real talk. I really enjoyed it. Um, if you like this show, I ask you to go tell someone else about it. And here's a bonus ask for you. I don't usually make a bonus ask. But if you like this show, go check out Eater Upsell. It's hosted by Amanda and Daniel Ganin. It's Eater's flagship podcast covering food news, restaurant culture, and industry trends. It's very good. You will enjoy it. Okay, here's the conversation Amanda and I had with David Chang at the Code Conference. So it's a smaller group here, so we can keep this a secret, but I interviewed the CEO of uh, 21st Century Fox yesterday, I interviewed a senator this morning, uh, CEO of AT&T, talked to the CEO of Spotify later. This is the interview I'm most excited about. So just between us, um, but before we get there, I want to bring on Amanda Clute, who's editor-in-chief of Eater, who's going to come with me. All right. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Peter. I brought in Amanda one because she knows her shit. She knows a lot more about food than I do. Also, she's less likely to be a fanboy. Yes. Dave Chang. Hopefully I can stay objective in this, whereas just you... Just cooler. I'm just going to sort of freak you out. You will not. I'm going to sit over here so it looks okay. less good. <laughs> Should we explain who Dave Chang is? Do you guys know who Dave Chang is? Yes. All right, he's a very famous chef, owns a bunch of restaurants in America, Canada, Australia, has a Netflix show called Ugly Delicious, you may have seen, has a podcast. He's a brand. He's a brand. He has a, he has a we'll condiment line. There's all kinds of things. Yeah, check your bag for the, the condiments, Ooh, yeah. I think. Yeah, Ooh, I we'll know. ask. All right, that's enough wind up. Let's yep. bring on Dave Chang. Okay, so there's a you lot. You don't have to cook? <laughs> no, no, thank, thank goodness. Just the one, the one event where you don't have to cook for anybody. Um, but there's a lot to get into. Media, tech, restaurants. Let's start with restaurants. Um, you have expanded your empire quite a bit over the last decade. And I'm wondering, how do you decide what to say yes to? Because I'm sure you have way more opportunities than you can even handle. Yeah. Um for about 10 years, there was no strategy. <laughs> we did whatever we wanted to do. Our first restaurant outside the East Village was in Sydney, Australia, right. um, because we felt like it. Um, <laughs> there was no strategic growth strategy, all these words that I've learned now. You um, knew how long that plane ride was. Right? Yeah, 21 hours. I've done it many times. And uh, I think we did our best to not ever become a company with any kind of measurables and, and strategy, and now that's different. So we have you know, north of 1,000 employees total now, and what we say yes to is now a process. Mm. Because if it was up to me, even though I think I say no to everything, I really don't. I say yes to many, too many things. So how present do you think you need to be? How many places are you running right now? How many outposts of the Chang Empire are there? Um, including Fuku, the fried chicken sandwich shop, is probably in the 
mid twenties now. And then if we take Fuku out, just their traditional restaurants, it's a dozen. Mid teens. Dozen. So yeah. do you feel like you need to be in each one of those a certain amount of time each year for it to work? Um, some that run better than others. Just yeah, I consider the the real full service restaurants to be not that I have children yet, like children in the sense that when you open up something new, they're like a newborn, and you need to really like look after it. And then we have some restaurants that are like. They, they pay their own taxes, they have their own jobs, and they need very little things, and you see them two or three times a year, and we have everything else in between. And I think a lot of how we manage now is because we have such a strong team. Um, we've been in business now 15 years. I think we have many of my management team have been around 10 plus years. So it's just getting to understand that philosophy, and I think I'm trying to be a better delegator, which I didn't quite understand what that meant until I think the past couple of years. So you're like, a lot of these folks here run software businesses or invest in them and they're used to the idea of like, you make the thing and then you scale it, right? You make it once mm -hmm. and then you can sell it a lot of places. You could argue that you could do that too, right? Because you're a brand and you can just churn out stuff and you attach your name and, and maybe drop by once a year. And, and I mean, other people who do what you do have a version of that, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> do you want to do that? <laughs> in one of, uh, we have a board meeting and someone said recently that, hey Dave, as sort of not a joke, but a joke, you're the worst business person I've ever met. <laughs> and that was sort of the idea that I have an aversion to scaling something in, I've sort of worked my entire career not to scale something. We even have a scalable concept named Fuku and every iteration is different. And it's the same thing, but like, I just wanna make it better and better and better um, to the point where we can scale it. But what I've learned is the idea of scaling something over and over and over again, while it's interesting to me, I don't wanna physically be the person doing it. I wanna be the person or create the team to like help make it better. Um, so even in Vegas or in DC, it's not like a, gonna be a greatest hits. It's its own very specific. When the thing is we have done the greatest hits mm -hmm. in Washington DC and it didn't work. Right. And we, we blew it up and we put a new chef in and we've just got a great review. So it's completely different than the tech business because scaling a brand in food, yes, it can work at McDonald's or if you have a, you know, a beverage, but the idea of scaling you know, something that's intimate and some kind of contract between you and a prospective diner, that's hard because we're, tr we're still trying to be best in class uh, in making the most you know, thoughtful, delicious food and it's, it's hard to scale excellence, I think. So dumb question, if you're not super oriented towards scale and maxing it out. But I, but I am. Okay. But I'm just trying to figure out how. Status. Yeah, I'm, I'm learning how to do it. But to, but to what end? Like you seem, you strike me, and maybe it's just the brand, right? Is like someone who likes being in the kitchen and playing around with stuff. And what is the point of adding to the empire? You're doing really well now. Why do you want to keep pushing it out? You know, we've turned down offers to sell and to scale, right? It's never been, I'd never got into legitimately food to make money, as weird as that might, I mean, now it's like a cool job, but I was probably over the last, you know, era where you got in because you couldn't really do anything else. And uh, uh, now, because I shouldn't be here talking to you guys in a room full of, uh, of, of fancy pants, fancy pants, super successful people, I, I just might, I know how lucky I am, and the fact is, what I've learned after 15 years of doing Momofuku is that what brings me happiness, because I'm sure man, and many people know, like I'm not like the happiest person. I could have the best day in the world, but I'm always like, oh, we could do this better, we could do this better. 
I want to be able to make our company better, to provide for the people around me, and that, that makes me happy, right? And I think scale, because restaurants are notoriously, like, we don't have the margins that tech has. <laughs> we just don't. Across the board, food should be more expensive, mm -hmm. but people aren't ready to accept that yet. Until that can happen, we have to figure out how to create enough profitability so we can provide for all of our employees. Could Fuku become that? Could you yeah, see Fuku as like a 300 Should we tell people what Fuku store? is in case they haven't seen it? A Fuku? What, what, well, yeah, in case they haven't had a Fuku in their life. Oh, Fuku is just a, um, our take on a fried chicken sandwich. Um, and it's done in a sort of a more of an Asian context. Um, or you could even just look at it as a liberal Chick-fil-A. Um, <laughs> Chick-fil-A was the model too, right? You love Chick-fil-A. Because I grew up eating Chick-fil-A, but the reality is you can do it better. It's like once you see how they do it, it's not that great. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to say that it's not delicious, but like I think you can make it better. And that's our attempt to do it. And we now have a team and it's now siloed off and it has its own financing. And when I say I don't want to scale it, I want to do it in a way that I think is better and more thoughtful. Um, bless you. And I think it's gonna take time. And we have nine locations, we have like many more online. So while I'm telling you no, we're not scaling it, we are definitely scaling it. I'm just not comfortable in saying that it's a set model. Got it. Right, and what about the culture as you expand to so many different markets? How do you think about that? I know you've said that like the chemistry between the staff is almost as important as the technique. That's been incredibly difficult, right? Um, we just opened up in Los Angeles and downtown and it's been, I think, my, all of my experience to be the best version of myself. Um, and over the years, uh, I, I've had to become a better manager of people and to realize that my communication skills are not very good and that people are working incredibly hard for us because number one, they need to provide for themselves, but number two, they wanna have opportunities moving forward. And a restaurant group, even if it's super busy, may not have the complexities or the systems you might see in a white collar job. Mm -hmm. And the biggest difference that I'm trying to tackle right now is, um, and again, with, with everything that's happened in the world today, is how do you balance out what's essentially still a blue collar labor, which is cooking, which is now glamorized to the point where it now has white collar values. Right. And that's a collision that's hard to mitigate and to sort out. And that's what I'm trying to figure out myself. When you say white collar values, can you elaborate on that a little more? Um, you mean like how much people expect to be paid or the from benefits? pay to benefits to also the hours you work um, to any kind of benefit, right? Like, you know, we're going through a lot right now. Like many restaurants don't even have an HR program, right? Like I'm sure many of you guys have too many HR people, right? <laughs> we would love to have that problem. Um, and I'm trying to figure out like how that works because everyone has an understanding of food now. The food awareness is higher than ever before, but no one quite wants to understand how that food gets made, right? They understand it maybe from an environmental perspective, but they don't understand it from the restaurant perspective. And there's a lot that needs to be not just elevated, but, but like thoughtfully brought up. Part of the, the, the appeal, I think, for cooking is reputationally, right? Like it's a fun place for people, young people to hang out and you get drink a lot and hang out with your coworkers and maybe you have sex with your coworkers. And uh, are you, over time, are you, are you trying to 
make that a little more square and a little more white collar, or, or do you figure that people are going to do what they're going to do? Well, yeah, and I think I've been so allergic to a corporate body for so many years. Now I think I've convinced myself it's the only way to go. And we have to be the, the most efficient and most thoughtful way of company on how we organize people. Um, part of that is how we structure our cooks, our back of the house, our front of the house, the servers, to you know, having systems in place. I think the balance is, is to make sure that we don't become entirely systemized. So my job is to fuck it all up. In the sense of like, we want to be 100% committed to creating a white collar environment. What I mean by that is like, hey, like you can only have one shift drink at the end of service. Mm -hmm. You have to take an hour break. That's non-negotiable. You have to do this and this. You have to take certain vacation days. We have systems, like we are more thoughtful than ever in terms of tallying data of our employees to make sure like, hey, you haven't taken vacation days. Why is that? Certain things like that. It's almost like professionalizing. Yeah, it's professionalizing. That's that what hasn't I mean. Been. And I think it might be hard for people that aren't of the restaurant world to, to be like, whoa, like you guys are really in the dark ages. Like, yes, we are. <laughs> and my fear is that once you become too systemized in the restaurant industry, you're gonna lose any of the coolness, creative parts. Like, I got into cooking because it was so on the like, it just wasn't cool, you know? Everyone thought it was career suicide when I said, hey, I'm gonna start to cook. Um, so it was that, that, that sort of sense of danger, sense of recklessness that no longer really exists. Like, but it could make it more inclusive for more exactly, people now. Exactly. And that's what I've been wrestling with, with all of this uh, change that's been happening is what needs to get better. And I think for a long time I thought if things become professionalized, then food will be less delicious. Mm. And I think I was 100% wrong in that because I kept on putting myself in the center of that equation. And having balance, you know, like, you work long hours in the culinary world. And I've always believed that the culinary world and those that lead people in the culinary world have maybe one of the hardest jobs because you can't motivate people with a giant stock option package or a giant bonus that you might get on Wall Street. You gotta motivate someone to do physical hard labor and to try to get better at that through sheer like integrity and like personal will and that's hard that's incredibly hard to motivate people and and one of the things that i think is different is maybe you can't just force someone to do something that they don't want to do you have to encourage them to do that and that's something i think that the professionalism that's happening in restaurants is now i'm i'm seeing that benefit because i didn't i worked under regimes that were like incredibly brutal it's like a hazing culture right yeah. Yeah, and, and it's like very secret. Like you're never gonna hear stuff that happened um, because it's a rite of passage. It's, I can't justify anything that happened, but like what happened and how you learned how to cook then is very, very different now. How much of your thinking has changed in, um, because of Me Too and overall, and then the restaurant industry in particular is a lot of high profile stories, Mario Batali, many others. Man has written about a lot of them, um, about your industry and, and, and the abuses there. How much of that has, has affected your thinking? Um, to be completely honest, which I've been the entire time here, is the fact that we've been trying to figure out how to make this better for, for many years. Mm -hmm. Because 
our labor force has been changing. Like I, I've been joking, I've been working with millennials since they were millennials, like they could work. And now the 18 year olds are now like 28 years old and their, their value system and how they want to perceive the world is different. And once we saw that they were allergic to the working conditions and the stress that we were creating, we created symposiums. That's why we created MAD, this thing we host in, in Copenhagen with other chefs to be able to communicate like, hey, things are changing, we need to make it better. And just because we came up under a brutish system doesn't mean that we can justify it moving forward. So it's been on our minds for a long time. And I'd like to say that's the one of the positives that the culinary world, at least the leadership I believe around the world has been thinking about is that what worked for them in the past wasn't gonna work moving forward in terms of how you were going to you know, get new employees to like care about it. Um, this year, starting with John Besh, uh, and then Amanda's team at Eater really uh, changed the perspective of everything. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it changed how we were thinking about it, but it changed the fact that the entire industry, whoever covers it, whoever goes in the restaurants or supports restaurants now has to believe that um, the things that they didn't care about matter quite a bit. Right, right. and it's not just your company, but it's also like you were friends with some of these guys. Like, has it had to change your way of dining? And, and I don't know. Yeah, it's been really difficult for myself because I've been friends with a lot of the people that have uh, been exposed from the Me Too movement, not just in the culinary world. And I've been wrestling with myself as to what it says about me. Could I have done things differently? I don't know. I think all of us are trying to figure out what we could have done or said um, and have that dialogue. And that's the only thing I know I can do right now is to, to, to make our own company better and to learn from the mistakes of others. When it comes to the regards of someone like Amari Batali, it's still something I don't know how to comprehend um, because I, everything he's done has been, like, there's just a recent revelation more on, on Eater today about Mario and it's, it's not just disheartening, you're like, Jesus Christ, this is yeah. so it's hard arranged. to read because simultaneously, I don't know if we would be in business today without Mario's support. Mm. So I feel obligated to recognize that, but also like, what do I do with the opportunities I have now? And the only thing I think I can do uh, with, the, with the platform that we have is to be the best in class business with the most thoughtful, forward-thinking culture, we're knowing that we're never gonna be perfect, but that's always been our goal because right now, I think a lot of people are downtrodden in the color, covering it or working in it. It's been really tough for everyone. It's been demoralizing. And how I can make sense of any of it is, is to make sure our business is best in class. Amanda's spending a lot of time at Eater talking about, should we cover restaurants that have abusers running them? Should you go eat at restaurants where that, that's the case? Do you have advice for, for folks here? And, and personally, what are you thinking about, you know, if, if, if it's a restaurant where you know someone's been accused of that, do you want to avoid that place? Do you want to go to support the remaining team? It's a really great question. And how I've internalized it is, you should all ask yourself this before you eat something, you should ask, where did it come from? How was it raised? What was the provenance? Don't just put it blindly in your mouth. Mm -hmm. And more than ever in 2018, it's funny, like ethics and morality are more important than how ever. How are the employees treated? What and is how, the culture exactly. here? Exactly. And 
I don't think it's going to be that hard, but just ask around or just read about it. And, um, I, you know, it's funny. You, I, I was about to say, like, hey, if they treat their animals right or, like, their product right and everything seems like it's copacetic, that was good enough. Mm -hmm. But now with other allegations in, like, Oakland and, like, there's other restaurants that did everything right except take care of their employees. And... I don't know what that answer is. Well, that was an obsession for so long in this industry was the provenance of the food, and people yeah. are now finally talking about the labor and the treatment and the culture. And it's not just hard to talk about, it's hard to wrap my head around. And um, as a company, we have to get better. We've had shortcomings in communication, and just because I believe my intent has been right, I've been imposing what I believe is the perfect version of, of like what our company should be, but we have so many different kinds of employees and it's so hard because part of it is we need better resources. We need, we need to, quite frankly, make more money to be able to invest it back in. And how a customer will decide where to eat, I think that's gonna have to happen from you know, journalists and eater and to be able to support these newsrooms that are dedicating a lot of resources to uncovering the truth. So we could talk about this forever, but I, yes. do, I do have burning questions about your, you're launching a media company. Why? <laughs> <laughs> you have a Netflix show, you have a podcast. What is, what is this company going to do and, and why are you doing it? Well, part of it, as I was saying, like better, better resources, making more money. And we have a restaurant that has a great brand. And we're just trying to get it all aligned where whatever works, it's almost like, you know, I won't say diversifying your risk, but like you look at someone like Wolfgang Puck and he's created a giant business of every kind of thing related to food from like CPG to pots and pans to frozen like pizzas to you know catering and there's a reason why hundreds of people stay with him and he constantly takes care of his employees and he's got a great team and that's sort of the idea was hey if the media takes off that's more stuff that we can bring back to the restaurants. Maybe people will never want to pay that much money for food. Maybe we could subsidize some of the costs with other stuff that's elevating our business. So it can be a biz the media stuff can be a business on its own. It can also boost the restaurants. Correct. I wish it was as easy as that. I know it's never going yeah. to be, but you know, that's that's what's driving me to create a media company where not only that, we can create new content, stories that aren't being told. It's one of the reasons why Ugly Delicious got created. You've done TV before. I, I know you did a car ad. I can't tell you what the car was because <laughs> advertising is not that good. But, and now that you're doing Netflix, does that feel different than being on a TV ad? Do you feel people recognizing you? It's a sea change. Yeah. Wow. Um, I didn't understand how many people were going to watch the show. Um, it's definitely, so I, I won't say numbers, but whether it's Chef's Table or any of the culinary programming on Netflix, um, the, the, the story is amongst those that have been on these programs, you're, you're expect to see a dramatic bump, even in restaurants, in restaurants. that are already busy. Mm. And that exposure is so important. And even though our show doesn't really even promote Momofuku, um, we have, we're just busier than ever before because of it. I have to, I have to say that. And part of that is like we're not, I think part of it is that we're not promoting the restaurant. We're trying to promote our ideals. And I think the younger generation, that's more important to them than ever before. And you already had a magazine, Lucky Peach, which you shut down last year. What are you going to do differently about this new media publication? Is there any DNA from Lucky Peach that will make it over? Are there things that will just completely not? Yeah, um, 
we shut down, unfortunately, this, this magazine that was beloved, um, and we had a really good run. We brought some of the team over, but what I'm going to do differently and what I'm learning as I get older, especially in business, is set it up right. Make sure you have clear like delineation of what's in, what's out. And I don't know if I would have ever learned that if we didn't make mistakes in the past. And, and um, you know, part of that is like having some metrics and uh, checks and balances to be like, hey, like, okay, what are the goals for this objective? And I hate, this is the professionalism that I've been going through. It's right. like, you can't just like manage. Yeah, you have to have a plan and that's what's different. Lucky Peach was very similar to like, hey, let's open a restaurant in Sydney. Right. You know, <laughs> it doesn't work Actually, anymore. this is very hard. And will, will, t will another Netflix show or, or some kind of show be the next big project? Um, I'm thankful that we seem to have a very solid relationship with Netflix and we're working on some stuff. I can't comment too much on that. Do you, do you, I assume you do. Do you read the reviews? Do you read like people critique episode X? There's one episode I'm sure you know about where people complain that it's the barbecue episode. There's no African-Americans in it. Do, are, are you taking that in or are you going, I'm gonna do what I'm gonna do? You know, I've read every bit of criticism about that TV show. Uh, just like I read every review because it kills me when anyone has a bad time. Um, so yes. Uh, I've read every criticism, whether it wasn't inclusive enough through uh, African-Americans or through women. I just know that we had one season and we did our best and we had no intention of trying to be exclusive. Um, and, and hopefully there's a second season we'll be able to like, do it better. So, you, but, so you'll take that into account when you program 100%, season two? Like, that's, you're not well, just we didn't make the show to be like, yeah, well, let's piss these people off. But you, the point is you read the comments and you of take course, it seriously. Of course. Yeah. Is it similar with restaurants? Is it a different experience going through that review cycle? Um, it's similar, but no. Like, you know, I have never gotten a bad review ever until Pete Wells destroyed a restaurant that I continue to talk about. And I'm sure people at moment are like, why is it bringing it up again? Um, because I've learned so much from it. Mm -hmm. And... That, that medicine tasted terrible, but I think it really helped us to reevaluate what we needed to do, where we needed to go, and quite frankly, I think all of our restaurants around the world um, are doing better than ever before because of that review. So I hate to give it to the New York Times and Pete Wells, but I am weirdly thankful for Read that. the comments. Yeah. Um, this is a tech conference. You've, you've, tech impacts your business. You've also invested in tech. You've tried different, you invested in, uh, Two Maple? startups, right? Maple, Ondo. Uh, they, Both delivery. Maple got acquired by Deliveroo. Uber Eats took over Ondo. Um, I still am incredibly bullish on it. I just think that there's only going to be probably one or two players that do it. Let's just spell out just in case people aren't following closely. These are both attempts to do on Food delivery. delivery. Food delivery. Um, a little bit different. Um, Maple was to create sort of meals that were diverse, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and we were doing like 10,000 meals a day in Manhattan, but the biggest issue with tech and food is the fact that you can create the tech, but you can't scale the people. Yeah. And there's a, the throughput of how you fast you can make food was always gonna be limited by kitchen space. And um, that's, and also the collision of tech culture and restaurant culture. You're, you're talking about the polar opposites. And um, I will always side with the restaurant culture and it's hard because I think people in, on the tech world think that they can recreate the intuition of someone that has made food their entire lives. And maybe that's gonna be the case down the road, but 
food delivery is going to work, maybe not now, but I do think that it's going to be hub models, some kind of roving platform truck that's making food. Um, and what's, what, how do you feel about, I think I know how you feel, but I want to ask, uh, services like Grubhub, Seamless, where they're not connected to you, they're coming, they're picking up your food, you don't intend to deliver it, but they're delivering it. Um, they'll tell you they think they're helping your business. Does that help you, hurt you? Um, I think it's fool's gold. For who? For the restaurant owner. Mm. But again, you don't even have a choice with you. Because you think the restaurant right? should control. I mean, the reality is you're only helping out the delivery company. You're not helping out the restaurant. And the margins are too high. So the whole thing needs to be thought through differently. Um, what's really getting squeezed out, so I know we're running out of time. Got time. But I, I, was, I was telling um, one of my friends who sells a lot of things on delivery, but he also has a restaurant that is very popular, but as he expanded to three locations, he couldn't figure out why, let's just say it was a milkshake, wasn't selling as well, right? They were, it was down. I don't think he put into consideration that now with all the delivery apps and all the food apps, if someone wants to net, like, get a milkshake delivered to their home, now they have the option to order milkshakes from the entire city of Manhattan. And they're no longer loyal to that brand. Maybe still loyal, but not like twice or three times a week, maybe twice a month. And I would argue that like, while they might be up 15% on that one item, they might be 15% down on everything else. So um, I don't know if I explained that well. I'm happy to talk to anyone you, after the fact. Do you want people to not use delivery services? No, the model has to be better. And yeah. I think what's actually gonna happen is the delivery services wind up just gonna make their own food. And would you, would you get back into that space? Or are you, um, I, are you I, done I, with that? Man, I, 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 I'm most likely, being as stubborn as I am, will probably get, go down that road again. Because <laughs> I'm positive it can work. And I would, I'm just, I know it. Um, my only concern is high-end restaurants and large corporations that back restaurants, restaurant groups, will thrive. Uh, and fast food, QSR, and models of that sustained delivery will also thrive in the future. You, it will eradicate the mom and pop and the middle, the middle mid-market restaurant. I'd, I want to be hopeful. I don't know how to preserve that. The next Momofuku can't work with that paradigm. I don't know if Momofuku works today. Right. Mm -hmm. um, let's open it up, because we have more questions, but we'll open up to you guys first. Don't be shy. Put the lights on so they can see. There we go. Hey, John. Hi. How's it going? John Ford from CNBC. Uh, Ugly Delicious is weird and great. Uh, I, I watched it and was like, whoa, what did they do that for? Like the animations, the cartoons, the middle of a documentary. I'm curious about your role in the creative process. Is it similar to a kitchen? How do you approach something like that? How did you assemble a team and kind of what was the mandate that you or somebody else who you brought in had for putting that together? Well, that's a, a question that's a little bit not difficult. Number one is uh, Netflix gave us total freedom to do what we wanted. And we told them like, hey, we want to push it out here, here, and here. And they're like, go for it. Secondly, I think that they gave us the freedom to do that because we partnered with an award-winning, Academy Award-winning documentarian named Morgan Neville. Um, and, and that changed the game for us because now all of a sudden we were partnered with someone that could translate our crazy ideas into actual footage and his whole team of editors. So what it really was was finding like-minded individuals that wanted to push themselves out of the comfort zone and 
really critically think through what might be a bad idea and turn it into a good idea. And, and we're, that's why Turn Weird, right? Like it's a not your normal show. Um, and it, wasn't, it, was for, it was because everyone had a say in something. And it took a lot, that's why it was sort of inefficient to make. It took way, way too long in my opinion. But uh, I'm proud of the fact that it's unique. Do you feel like you had the same amount of control as you do with your restaurants with that product? Or because it's not what you do normally, you had to sort of hand it over to somebody else? You know, the weird thing, and I've thought about this a lot, after uh, we sent it in and it got edited, it, I was wrestling with the fact that um, after it gets launched on, on February 23rd, we were never going to be able to change it ever again. Right. It's out there. And that was my same criticism of food, is that like, you're getting judged on something that is ephemeral and will constantly change over time. You can never get the same meal twice. And that's also been a benefit to me, is whenever we have a restaurant, whenever we do something, it's a living organism, and if our mindset is to always get better, that's what we're gonna do. So uh, I'm still grappling with the idea that like, most of, the most of it's been praise and most of it's been really good, but the idea that like, we're gonna have to wait for another season if we get the opportunity to address the inadequacies of season one, that's, that's really hard for me. Because I, like, I, I need instant gratification, you know? Brooke, are you gonna ask a question? Hi, Brooke. David, it's Brooke Hammerling. Hey! Hi. Um, wow, it's nerve-wracking asking questions. I loved Maple, by the way, we miss it, so <laughs> we, we love that. Just to talk a little bit back to the Me Too stuff, um, as you and I both come from a world that is imploding, um, the people that we know, you talked a little bit about how the change, know where your food's coming from, know what the restaurants are. For those of us who knew, who sat there and know those chefs and know the owners of the restaurants and are part of the world of the spotted pigs, what do we do moving forward? How can we be more beneficial to the owners of restaurants and chefs and people that go and have events there and things like that? What, what do we do moving forward there? Well, you know, it's funny, it's like, this is a conversation we, we would have offline, so this is just like, you're hearing it. And <laughs> we share a lot of the same friends and uh, that went, that whether it's Mario or Ken, um, I've been weighing pretty heavily, could I have been more stern? And I know there are journalists, there's other chefs, there's patrons that all felt the same way. And there's a sense of guilt that you could have prevented something. I, as much as I wanna dwell upon the past, um, I feel like I did say stuff, right? I was like a moral compass. So I think for those that are in the business, um, we need to be stronger in our moral compass, essentially. When someone does something that they may find questionable or not do something right, I think instead of, when we see it like immediately, we need to talk to them about it and be like, hey, that's inappropriate. Um, and, and teach it as a learning lesson. Um, when you see something over a period of time, that's unacceptable. And that's what I'm trying to weigh out is to put it into two categories. Like, did, did something happen and someone not know how to handle the situation and they made a mistake? Or has it been repeated abuse? And for those that are friends of people in the business, I think that's the only thing you can do is just be honest and have that dialogue. And that's what I've been trying to have with myself and those that are in it. I don't know if I... No, that helps. I mean, I think we all just have to figure out. It's just such a, it's inherent in the culture. It's, I think it's really hard. It's incredibly hard. Um, 
and I'm wrestling with it. If I'm not giving a, a perfect answer, it's because I, I, I still don't know how to like map it out. Thank you. David, Amanda, thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Great. guys. Thank you. Thanks, sir. So cool that I got to talk to David Chang. Like I said, I'm a giant fanboy. So cool that Amanda helped me out with that interview. She's great. Thanks to both of them. Thanks to you guys for listening. Thanks to Cadence 13 and Vox Media who bring ads to you guys so you can listen to this episode of Recode Media for free. I'm Peter Kafka. I will have a new show for you very soon. Hello, listeners of Recode Media. This is Casey Newton, Silicon Valley editor of The Verge. My dream is that one day Peter Kafka will interview me about my success in media. And so I started a new podcast called Converge. Each week we'll bring you fresh ideas and a sense of what it's like to build a company from the people who are actually doing it. And we'll do it all with games that no one has ever played. It's like HQ trivia if there was only one contestant and it was literally impossible to win money. So far, we've got guests lined up from Google, Lyft, Pocket, and that bodega near your house. You know, the one with the weird cat. The first episode drops Wednesday, May 23rd, wherever you get your podcasts. Converge. You've never heard a tech show like this.